What's going on, good people? Uh, <laughs> Three Times Dope Podcast coming at you live. Uh, some of us are live, live, like live, for real live. live, like for real live, like not just like regular live, right? Like me and me and Rob, we 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 at our houses and stuff. But hey, somewhere this else. Is tell, tell the folks where you at. So I am um, happy to be here at Kellogg conference center here on the campus of Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. for the gold standard of excellence ceremony. They are acknowledging um, the 2022 D.C. Teacher of the Year, Ms. Dominique Foster, who we had on the show, um, who was a pre-K teacher at Friendship, a public charter school here in D.C. doing amazing things. And so the ceremony tonight... Let's go charter schools. Let's go high quality schools for all young people. How about right. charter public private oh, business? Hold on, I'm all, all, all right, let me oh. turn the screen off you. Let's <laughs> let's go charter schools. <laughs> Wait, I so it was a really special evening tonight because um, many of these people have not been in community for a very long time, so they were able to acknowledge the 2020, 21, and 22 teachers of the year. They also acknowledge the Milken Fellows teachers, teachers who are doing amazing work in history and science, um, not only just in DC public schools, but in DC charter schools from K to uh, 12th grade. So it I was mean, exciting. The, the adult education crew didn't get no love? Gee, adult didn't education we... didn't get no love, but like um, lots, so good, inspiring things, um, lots of folks from the community, um, lots of folks who are representing their wards, representing public charter school offices, um, DC public schools, staff, families. So that was really good. As we sat there in a beautiful, um, there were some things I noticed, um, you know me. So um, those who don't know, I was a sociology major at Hampton University, the real HU, my home by the sea. And so sometimes even when I am enjoying something, I always find myself like, what is the trend that I see here? Like, what's happening? And so I noticed three big things. One, I noticed um, not any Black men teachers. Um, not a, not one. I know we got, Doc's got his shirt on. We had Brother Sharif doing a lot of big work around recruit, recruiting Black male educators, but there were no Black male teachers acknowledged in this event. I do know um, that there was a brother who won last year who was at Aton Elementary School doing amazing work. He wasn't here tonight, but like a big, big gap for that. Um, also a big gap in black teachers teaching history. Um, mm. So I wanna say the Milken is specifically to like social studies, history, mm. that kind of thing. Not, not none of them there. Um, and and a, a large number of, of white women from and teachers from schools that we would consider high performing. So on the other side of the river, um, shout out to those schools that are doing great work, but it makes me wonder, so where are the opportunities for us to lift up the people who are in serving in a different kind of way in different kinds of communities for the amazing work that they are doing. There are high quality teachers, maybe not high quality overall schools or high quality overall districts, but there is high quality teaching and learning in all kinds of schools. And it's nice <laughs> to see that we can highlight some of those. And it makes me think about where we need to be pushing in more to highlight the rest of them. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, yeah I made a makeshift office space too. I see you out here. We see you out here being creative. Find a way, find a way, Vikings don't quit. 
Shout out yeah. to CW Harris. We're gonna figure it out. <laughs> there it is. So, so Doc, Doc, what's your take on that, man? Just the need for black teachers? Like, what, what, what are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, it's both a need, but it's also about retaining those who are already there. Um, and I think if the back door is raggedy and rickety, then they're going to leave anyway. And so I think that um, it's it's both a recruitment and a retention strategy at the same time. And I think as a black community, we need to promote teaching as a viable path to our liberation. And I think that we don't. If you go to a job fair, how many times do you, even in schools, how many schools actually have job fairs or career fairs and don't have anyone talking about teaching? And I, I just think that it's a historical mistake because for a long time, pre-1954 in particular, teaching, preaching, you know, skilled trades, those were the things. And teacher teaching was highly esteemed in the black community. But I think that as things have evolved, we've uh, deprofessionalized teaching, which in turn has, or in turn has de-intellectualized teaching, where historically smart black folks yeah. left Howard Hampton, oh, I'm sorry, Hampton, Howard, I got to have it in the right order. Um, and uh, <laughs> and went into the teaching profession. Like, whereas now I think there's this, well, if you can't do X, then just go be a teacher. When in fact, I always say to folks, you know, teachers are one of the few group of people in, that I've ever met who really know how to multitask. Because if you're not a good multitasker, you can't be a great teacher because it's all multitasking in a day. And in a given 20 minutes, there's no telling what types of things you have to manage. So, and then the last thing I think that the need for black teachers isn't new, right? Like it's been an age old conversation. And I think, you know, like we've allowed the ed reform conversation to sidetrack us from that. And like, you know, people know the data on what happened in DC when Michelle Reed came in and disproportionately black teachers were removed from their positions without any recourse, without like, okay, professional development and things like that. And I think now, and there are people I know and who are deep in that ed reform world who are like, yeah, we made some mistakes around that, right? And I think that there has to be that accountability, you know, since a lot of ed reformers in accountability, like, all right, well, let's hold them accountable for that. So anyway, so I think there's a lot of accountability, but also I think the work around you know, ensuring that our teachers have access to the same discounts as people in other professions have, whether we're talking about public servants, uh, whether we're talking about first line um, emergency workers, things like that. I, I think that teachers deserve the best. And there are some things that we can do outside of education in the corporate sector and other places to help uh, recruit and retain teachers in our community. So um, and shout out to as, as we think about we need more black teachers, shout out to uh, one of my people I look up to is Kier Butts. He was the first African-American man to ever be teacher of the year in Baltimore City Schools. And uh, he is one of the best teachers I've ever watched teach, right? And during the early days of the pandemic, I would just sit in awe and just like, yo, can I watch you do this like thing, online learning thing? And I would just watch with amazement of how organized he was, um, and, and he just was super thoughtful uh, as an educator. So I think we need to lift up success stories uh, like Kier 
give Kier some shine and say like, would you be willing to work to train a new generation of teachers? And a lot of the folks who are training teachers, just because you've got three funky letters after your name, don't mean you should train teachers, right? And I, I just think that folks like Kier, folks like you, folks like Reef, who don't have doctor degrees, right? I think should we should reimagine what it means to train uh, black teachers. And I know that's problematic, and folks in teacher are like, ah, but like it's true. So, uh, sir, uh, my 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 doctorate is loading. Uh, I, I I just uh, yeah. <laughs> I just submitted to IRB. Uh, oh, oh. Things are things are moving. These things are moving pretty quickly here, and so oh. and so don't don't, oh. don't you ever. Besides these nice oh. T-shirts that we were sent, put me in the same box or category as Sharif El Meki. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't don't even do it. I'm not with it. So, uh, talking about talking about teachers, right? Like, I feel like it's important for us to talk about teacher quality, right? So, like, you know, a lot of times when we talk about education, we talk about Finland and what happens in Finland, right? Yeah. But a lot of things that we don't talk about that goes on in Finland is that uh, in order for you to become a teacher in Finland, it's almost as difficult as you getting in the most difficult college in the United States, right? So, like, Finland is not just taking in anybody that's breathing air that wants to teach, right? There's a certain standard and a certain level in which you have to present yourself in order for folks to say, you know what, I want you to come in and teach kids, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, as you were alluding to, like, uh, like, like pre-Brown, um, teachers were revered in the black community, right? And and I feel like that goes all the way up to like the '80s, at least for me, right? So like, mm -hmm. when we drove by uh, teachers in in our community, like I I was just in awe, like that house is amazing. Like that grass is perfectly manicured. Right. Um, you know, like those slacks are perfectly pressed when I see this teacher at Sunday school. Right. It's just the way that people presented themselves. It was just different from just how folks. But Finland as your example. Finland is yeah. Finland is my example in terms of the quality of educators. But in like Context is important too. Finland only has like 5 million people. 91% of them are Finnish. Okay, cool. And so do you want me to do do you want me to say something anti-American here? Like, are you trying to bait me? Like, what's what's happening? Here? I'm just, I'm just I mean, saying, like, I just always find international comparisons of education to be problematic because context is important. Okay. And so, let's, okay, so let's let's take that, let's take that into consideration. H had her hand up too. H, go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I got to unmute you. You can unmute yeah. yourself. All right, go ahead. So a few things. So first, where's my T-shirt? That's Sharif. If you yeah. listen, brother, brother Sharif, I, I I didn't get my T-shirt. I got my Girl Scout cookies, but I didn't get my T-shirt. So that's first. Did you pay for Second, the Girl Scout cookies? I did pay for the Girl Scout cookies. I paid for the shirt if I need to. All you got to do is send me an invoice. You know how it is. We family. I want to be able to hold up my shirt. I feel a bit ostracized and marginalized by my agenda. But anyway, that's for another one. Okay. Um, the second thing I was going to say is you both made this connection around like how teaching used to be this profession, this career that was like revered and how we looked at them in such a high regard. And, and, and Doc made a connection about preaching and like you know the, the, these ministers and there is I think a connection between being a teacher and being a preacher in mm. the sense where for many of us you have to be able to see a better future than what you like are dealing with in the current time and so whether the teacher is looking at 
current data and trying to move a kid or looking at particular issues in the community, there, there are these parallels between the way that teachers have to position themselves to pour into children, to often be overlooked, to get like a lot of the blame and none of the credit, to have to deal with a bunch of outside things that don't even necessarily are a part of what you are supposed to do, that is a connection. The other thing that you said, Ray, was you talked about how you would drive past your teacher's house and see his grass or how his pants were pressed nicely at church. And what we also have lost, I think, when we remove Black teachers from teaching, we sometimes remove them from the communities in which they are situated. And so you don't see them on the block. You don't see them at the corner store. You don't see them at the car wash. They're not a part of your community. And so in addition to us trying to figure out ways that we can recruit and retain Black teachers, we also have to talk about how we can make sure that they are able to be in communities where their schools are situated. So because we know that the work of teaching does not just end at 3 p.m. when the bell rings. This is true, but let me disassociate myself from this preacher talk because a lot of these preachers are charlatans. They the devil. A lot of these teachers are charlatans. A lot of these school district leaders are charlatans. Them too. It's a lot of charlatans all over. Okay, all right. So as long as we're naming it. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. As long as we are naming it. Hey, shout out to my shout out to my homie, my my uh my basketball teammate from the University of Albany and also from Monticello High School, uh, Andre Duncan. I see you in here, man. He's also a uh, a physical edu education teacher at a charter school uh, in the city. So happy Teacher Appreciation Week for you, sir. Would you be shouting him out if he wasn't a teacher at a charter school? Yes. Maybe. <laughs> see, now we get to the crux of the issue, H. Hey, listen, listen. Hey, I've 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 never purported myself to be uh pro public anything, right? I feel like once you y'all already know how I feel. Don't try to send. Don't don't try to pigeonhole me, man. You know how I feel. Naomi is in the building. Public so, schools are charter schools. So it, it, that that too. But but so here's the thing, right? So a Starbucks just got unionized in North Carolina. You know what that means, right? What's that, that means mean? that the coffee is gonna be shit now. At that Starbucks, right? That that that's all that's that's all that means, right? No. All right, moving, moving on. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm queuing you up. I'm queuing you up, baby. Uh, student loans in Biden, right? Because like a lot of people are just not with these student loans. You got people that um are saying that this burden is going to fall on tax uh, on uh, poor people that uh, never went to college. Uh, and that is going to fall on folks that may have already paid um, their college off. So what are your thoughts on, on, on student loans and Biden? I have student loans. I've been paying on them forever. And uh, when I was a teacher, I didn't realize there was loan forgiveness. Like no one really told me that. Like I didn't know. So I think there's, before I get to the federal government, and President Biden, there's a lack of education for students. Like some, I had a student loan that was private. I didn't know that I was like, well, they got for me a student loan. Like I got to go to school. Like my mom ain't got no money. So like, you know, like I had to cover the cost of, you know, whatever was left. And um, so I think there's a need for us to educate students on. And I think that falls on us as adults. Right. As those who've been through it, like what is our responsibility? Because 
leaving it to the universities that are oftentimes they just want their money. Predatory lenders. Predatory uh, lenders, right? So for them, I don't know that they have a vested interest in supporting students' knowledge base on student loans debt, right? And like, how do you, how do you accumulate student loan debt in a correct, responsible, manner, or responsible, a responsible manner, right? I think that's it's a fair thing, right? I always tell people, don't tell me you don't want to go to school because you don't want to have student loans, right? That's not an excuse, <clears throat> but I understand it, yeah. right? I do, I do get it, right? Now, in terms of Biden, I think what happens is that, and this is my same critique, which those that have listened to us before know that I'm a registered independent, right? Like I don't, I just, I just don't find any, I don't want to say any, I find it difficult to consistently vote for the Democratic Party when I ask myself all the time, what have you done for black people Nothing. in mass, right? And I say the same thing about the Republican Party, right? Like what? What about life for Black folks is drastically different because of you, right? And again, this isn't to suggest that all Democrats or Republicans are bad or whatever, right? I'm just saying as a system. When Joe Biden, at least as I understand it, from what I recollect, he promised to eliminate student loan debt. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but somebody is out there that he didn't actually say that. Yeah, I'm going to correct you. He said up to a limit, right? So like up to a certain amount. It wasn't the whole thing, right? That was more so like Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren that were pushing for... Well, Elizabeth Warren was pushing for $50,000 and Bernie Sanders was pushing to have it all eliminated if I'm... man, My man's Bernie. Uh, But anyway, so I think for me where I'm a little perturbed is that they want to cap it at based on how much people are making. And like, if you're making over a particular amount, you aren't eligible for any loan cancellation. Yeah, I saw that. And so for me, I'm like, but it depends on where you live, right? So if you live in DC, I don't care how much money you make. Yeah, It's still difficult to live off of a variety of income levels yep. in DC if you have children, If you have your parents that you're caring for their medical bills, if you have siblings where you're caring for whatever, my salary alone doesn't necessarily equate to my financial freedom, right? It just means that because of my salary, I may have additional financial burden. So I I just am leery of like, so what's magical? Because I think I read somewhere that it was $150,000 up to for an individual And it's like, but if you're if you're a teacher and you're teaching summer school, you get the bonus. You've been teaching for a while in DCPS. It's quite possible for you to make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a year as a teacher, as a principal. But it doesn't mean that you aren't struggling financially, depending on your economic situation. So I just think that and, you know, like in order to get to a point where you're making all of this money, you may have accumulated extra student loan debt so that you can have multiple degrees, so that you can advance in your career. And so I just think that it's complicated. So I, I do give them kudos for actually trying to address it, right? So I don't want to make yeah. it seem like I'm totally anti, oh my God, Biden's not doing anything. Yeah. I just think that there are nuances to to this that have to be addressed, have to be tended to, because without that, I mean... You know, like I would love for my student loan bill because I still owe student loans. Mm -hmm. You know, I would love for that bill to go away. 
because it would allow me to do other things uh, that would help advance um, finances, help support, um, you know, uh, things that I want to do for uh, particular for our oldest son as he gets into the AU basketball and just the types of things that he I want him to have access to that I don't I didn't have uh, access to. So I just think that there has to be nuance to the conversation that I, and again, I'm not in the White House. I'm not in any rooms talking to folks. So I don't know what types of conversations. I only know what I've read. Um, and so I think that uh there's that, but I go back to the education piece and, you know, want to name the responsibility that's on us as adults. When I think about the numerous social organizations that exist in our community um, and at universities, the numerous folks who attend HBCUs who should be doing this for those young folks as a wraparound support, because knowing what I know now, I probably would have taken a different approach because I was just happy to get alone. Like I wasn't thinking about whether it was public or private because, and then I find out that even if they do pass this thing, regardless of your income, it I don't think it applies to private student loans, Mm -hmm. at least as I understand it. So I I think there's some nuances to it all. And as someone who's carried student loans with me for a while, um, I'm super sensitive to it because I've watched how, you know, folks have to make a choice between do I pay this bill, that bill, or my student loan bill? Like it's a real, it's a real decision that people are making. And some people are missing rent. Some people may be missing a meal. Like it's just a lot uh, to it. And so I think that, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, there will be a more nuanced discussion. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think for me, um, I think we are similarly situated in terms of like how we look at loans, right? I didn't, I didn't have the information that I needed in order to know like what loan would be repayable uh, if I became a teacher and what loan didn't uh, apply. I think that a lot of the problem that we were having with student loan repayment is that when you would call in or when you would send information in, they didn't really know. And so because they didn't know, they couldn't process the payments the way that they need to be needed to be processed. And so you were having folks that were making payments or got frustrated with making payments and just deferred them because the folks that were uh, collecting them on the federal level didn't know what the hell they were doing. The second argument that I have is that these interest rates are out of control, right? Hmm. And so from my opinion, it's like, I wouldn't mind repaying them. I mean, I got to repay them because I don't want that debt to fall on my family or my estate if, you know, something happens to me. But if they lowered the interest rate, uh, it'll be a little bit more palatable for me uh, to pay them off, uh, if the interest rates weren't seven percent or eight percent, like you know, I mean, you can refinance now. I think that there's some folks that are offering like maybe like two percent, but I don't think that it should be any uh, any interest on student loans, right? Like, a, like a oh, no interest, wow. bear, a no interest bearing student loan is how we should, you know, because you're getting your money back, right? Um, and most folks aren't going to default on the, the reason why they default on things is because of the interest rates. And so you got compounded interest because you haven't been paid it or because you can't pay it or whatever. I just think that they would have a better time with collecting the money if it wasn't all this interest. And plus, you know, you would be able to pay this thing off in 10 years if you if there was no interest attached to it. But now you got folks that are, that are taking like 30 years because they're paying back the interest. And so I think we need to look at you know, the, the interest that are on these student loans. H, what are your thoughts? 
So I agree. I think that the interest is something important to, to think about because if I just had to pay what the tuition was, I would have been paid it off. It's the other interest and the compounding and the, the consolidation and all of that stuff that I think makes a difference. I think also for most people, when they come out of college, they're not even making enough money to no. even think about repaying those things back. And so sure, $400 or $300 a month may seem like it's an okay bill, but like that's a car note, right? That's a kid's tuition. That's groceries for the month. So the ways that we think about what that small amount means in a household that has more than maybe only one working person, maybe two people in college, you know, th there's lots of different dynamics that I think make that challenging. I think we also think about, we have no problem bailing out every other industry. Yes. We bail out the housing industry, we bailed out cars, we bailing out Ukraine. Like, so this issue is not around, we just wanna give people a gift. The issue is if I didn't have to pay 250 for a loan, I could put that 250 back into my community. I'd be maybe more likely to do some shopping, to buy a new car, to buy a second home, to do something with it that would stimulate the economy, which is what we're trying to get at anyway. And so it feels like it's just something that could be reasonable. I think it would appeal a lot to people. I think we also got to think about what it means for higher ed if what they are doing is really capitalizing off of people who get into a significant amount of debt. So what happens if that debt is gone, right? What does that do to the price of colleges? What does that, what does that do to, to these things where you can pay this amount and go to a school and, and have that debt relieved, right? So, I mean, I went to HBCU and Ivy League and I still got loans. Like loans are, are what it is. I'll, I'll probably die, God rest my soul, with loans. But to me, it felt like something that I could do, but I also like am single and don't have any children. So if I had to think about, do I go back to school or do I help put some money aside for my, my child or my sibling or somebody else that I had to maybe think or consider, I think that they're just implications to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh man. I, man. I, so I'm thinking about it now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm situated now. Right. So like if I had to make uh, consistent student loan payments now, I would be uh, in a better position to do it now than I would have been uh, previously in life. Um, but, you know, what you're saying makes absolute sense. Being able to pour that money back into our community. Right. Or even even if we were intentional about the things that we do in the black community, like, you know, like there's research that says that, you know, there's multiple touches that occur in white communities and, and communities that are non-black in terms of like money and like how it hits and like, you know, wh whatever, but it pales in comparison to what we do in the black community. We are so quick to go outside of our community in order to get the needs that we want or whatever, <clears throat> just because it may be a higher price or whatever, or, you know, it, it may, yeah. but usually it's probably better quality, but I, I feel like this is an opportunity for me to recommit to investing in our community and making sure that, um, my hands or, or money that comes out of my hands touches as many yep. folks as but, but Ray, yeah. I think there are two things that you, there's one thing that you said that sparked me to, to reflect on a couple of things. One, I'd never thought about no interest student loans, yeah. right? Like it never, because I mean, obviously that's not the world we live in. Right. And it's yeah. an intriguing concept that, uh, you know, that would be, um, you know, interesting. Right. And I think that like the idea of, you know, the fact that your your student loans, when you think about the amount of interest, is what gets a lot of people in trouble. Yeah. The other thing that I think is, and this is going to be like, people are like, oh my God, like, I can't believe you said this, right? But, you know, cancel me is fine. 
Um, I think there's also a level of accountability for us as black folks about how we utilize our resources to support kids when we think about canceling loans, right? When we think about providing scholarships, because I think there's a scholarship process that pays for school up front. Then there's a scholarship that's a reverse scholarship that covers student debt, right? And the reason why I say that is that um, I was super perturbed, to say the least, when it was celebrated that Robert Smith was canceling the student debt of all these students at Morehouse. Not because those students don't have student debt, but when we think about the percentage of, of low income black students who go to HBCUs, Morehouse ain't it. And it's a statistical fact, right? And this isn't my critique of Robert Smith and his generosity and his heart. It's a critique of the process and how we think about this, right? And like, we should be doing an analysis of which HBCUs have the highest percentage of students that receive student loans or don't have, like there are other ways to think about this and, and you can do it by Pell Grant recipients. There are a lot of ways you can crunch the numbers. And I think that as a community, we need to hold each other accountable when we think about the disproportionate amount of attention. And I'm speaking strictly to HBCUs, right? I mean, yeah. we can talk about PWIs, the disproportionate amount of attention and money that as Black folks, we celebrate when it goes to some of the quote unquote premier HBCUs. And I'm not suggesting that those brothers and sisters don't deserve those resources. I think it's a both and proposition. What percentage of the money that is going to this type of stuff is going to Arkansas Pine Bluff or is going to a place like UDC or is going to South Carolina State, right? For those young folks that are coming from particularly challenging uh, situations, right? And, and, and so I think that, and yes, Pell Grants don't have to be repaid, but the collective number amount of Pell Grants received by a university is a marker of the income levels of the students and their families, right? So I got that part. But what I'm saying is that if you use Pell Grants as a marker or some other marker to determine um, income levels of students and families, it would help us make better decisions. And again, my mama went to Spelman. So like the Spelman world, that world helped contribute to who I am. So I don't want it to be seen as a critique of Spelman, Morehouse, Howard Hampton, FAMU, um, you know, any of those things. I just think that as we think about supporting our community, it's really critical for us to do a deep dive and do the analysis and not fall victim to the shiny, shiny object syndrome of like, oh, I'm going to give money to to Howard because Ta-Nehisi Coates and um, what's her name? Nicole Hannah-Jones are now on faculty, right? All right yeah. You're moving on. Y'all here dropping, you name dropping. They don't pay us to be on this podcast. <laughs> I think Doc got a point though. I think, I think about that community colleges and boarding schools. I yeah. think about some of the best schools in the country and how many little students. I think about so many of my smart, intelligent, wonderful students who would thrive at Miss mm. Porter School, that would thrive at some of these best middle and high schools, but, you know, can't afford it, don't have access. You know, community colleges, trade schools. Send them to the C school. Schools. What are we talking about next? <laughs> I 
I guess somebody don't like that. That uh, that. Well, no, it's, it's not that I don't like that. That's not it. So my godson, since we, since you won't force me into it. So my godson, Christopher Allen, who is a grown, wonderful man. Um, when it was time for us to think about what middle school he was going to go to, we applied and he got into the C school. Um, and within a year, he wasn't able to find that as a successful environment for him. And it wasn't that he wasn't bright and couldn't thrive. And, but there was this thing because there were so many young people who were a part of that school community at the time, I don't know what it is now, who were like wards of the state, who had significant family issues, um, you know, who needed a ton of support. Like it was seed or like military school, like tons and tons of support. And for Christopher, it, it just didn't feel like a place for him to be. He had a mom and a dad who went to college. He thought that this like boarding school experience would give him a, an, an extra edge thinking about high school. And it wasn't a good fit mm -hmm. for him. Um, now he ended up going to a private school, I think out in New Hampshire and went there and met President, former President Barack Obama and went to Greece and like had this amazing independent boarding exactly. school experience. I don't. I, I wish I knew the name of it. I don't remember what it was. But he 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 spent the summer in. I'm sorry, somebody's screaming. He spent the summer in like all of these amazing, wonderful places. And so my point is that there are lots of great opportunities that too many of our students don't get an opportunity to engage in, whether it be the Hampton, Howard, Morehouse Spelling experience, or even high quality experiences around independent schools, private schools, boarding schools that that student loan and debt just get in the way for them. So. Listen, yeah. oh, I mean, what you're saying is so real. Uh, there's a school out here uh, on Long Island in the Hamptons. It's called the Ross School, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I was thinking about um, high school options for my son, uh, we went to visit the Ross School, and it was like Harry Potter-esque, like the feel that you got from it and whatnot, and like anything imaginable um, they had for students, right? And so anything that he wanted to be, anything that he wanted to do, he would have been able to do uh, international school. So like a lot of um, uh, diplomatic uh, uh, folks that have diplomatic ties send their kids to this school out in the Hamptons. Right. Um, we uh, applied for financial aid. Right. Because they were trying to diversify or they thought that they were trying to diversify. Right. Mm -hmm. Got the financial aid package. And it was like, y'all giving us $2, but the tuition is like 40 grand. Like what's happening? Like, we already front-ended his education in preschool because you have places like La Petite where you damn near paying more to go to La Petite mm -hmm. than you would to go to an Ivy, right? And so, you know, but a lot of people aren't able to do that and invest in their kids' education in order to see them come out on the back end and see that success from um, early childhood and being able to invest in them in early childhood. So yeah. we're at a loss in terms of like what 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 we're able to do. So quality education for our students is imperative, uh, and we got to rethink how we approach this situation. But but H, I want I want to I want to give you props for sharing your experience. I, I know it felt like it was a little forced, but after it came <laughs> out, it flowed, uh, and it was very organic, and and it was and it was the truth, right? So thank you for sharing. Yeah. And thank you. And you know, here's the thing: when you for just those few seconds, we're talking about the vision that you had when you were at this school and how it was the possibilities were endless. Anything he wanted to be, he could be, he could do it. He'd be surrounded by resources and endless possibility. That's the same kind of energy we need at every single school, no matter what ward, what part of the country, 
we don't have enough of that. Every single school, every single kid should walk into a building and feel as though there are endless possibilities for who they can be and what they can become. And that school and community should have the resources and the capacity to pour into that child instead of believing that what they are doing is a distraction. And if it's nothing that I can measure or track, then it's not valuable. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Amen to that, right? Okay. So, okay. So, to the more complicated portion of the show. So we, we have we have this occurring, right? So like I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll set it up, right? And so late last night, uh I got an email notification saying that a a, a brief from the Supreme Court had been leaked, right? Uh I think Justice uh Alito um uh came came out of his camp. We well actually we don't know who it came from, but God bless whoever it came from, 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 from leaking this. Right. And so uh, Roe versus Wade is, um, was established in 1973, gave women the right to, uh, to have an abortion and also uh, protect their privacy in terms of, um, in terms of what, what they can do with their bodies. Right. Later affirmed. Uh, and I think the, the, um, the Casey case, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Planned Parenthood of, uh, uh Casey case that it was affirmed and reaffirmed and it's been reaffirmed several times right and so um when the la- the latest three republican uh jurists that were nominated uh when they were going through their confirmation hearings each one of them and I heard it um on NPR today had stated that they would not touch um they would not touch Roe because uh, uh, uh the fact that it, it had already it had already um been upheld right and so now you have uh this the super majority in which uh five uh jurors have have now uh, overturned roe uh we don't know the final um uh, uh the final vote count or whatever we don't know well actually we do know because like the sources has been confirmed i think um chief justice john roberts uh confirmed it today that it, that it did come out of their camp out of the Supreme court camp and he's doing an investigation. But, um, how do you guys feel about, uh, uh, about this? And then we can talk more about like what we feel like, um, Americans should be doing right now. So I'll go ahead and jump in there. That's a lot to take in. H, we'll start with you. So I am just, um, my first two feelings were anger and confusion. I wasn't really, um, I, I was angry and I was confused. I was angry because it just feels like another example of people who are in positions of power and who are charged with making decisions for the good of all people um, and they drop the ball again. And so then, you know, I'm angry. But then I also am confused. And so I'm confused about a, a couple of things. Um, and I'm going to get to my confusion in a minute. But the thing that is troublesome for me is that too often we, we, we use coded language. We've talked about this before in education. And we, we say abortion, but we're really also talking about women's reproductive rights. And women's reproductive rights are much larger than a choice that a woman may make, whether you are pro-life or pro-choice. Women's reproductive rights and health has to do with 
adequate pre and postnatal care, sex education, um, adequate access to contraceptives, making decisions about who and how you want to use your body, um, just all of the things, right? And so it, it worries me that we talk just about abortion when there's so many other layers to women's health and women's reproductive rights that, that are just as much of a challenge. I also feel concerned because when I happened to flip on the TV last night, I saw people that were down at the um, at the courthouse. And if you didn't know any better, you could see from the crowd that it looked very much like the young white women who we often would see in clips around like women's justice and women's movements back in the 70s. Um, and and no, no qualm about that. But we have to also realize that access to safe, free and um, abortions and or healthcare for women does not look the same for women who have class privilege over those that don't. And so what we know is that there will be black and brown and other women who do not have access to that. And so it becomes this like face, like this is just a decision that this white court is making and it's impacting white women. Um, we don't think about those who have fertility issues, those who are not able to carry a, term, a pregnancy to term, those who have been, you know, who want a different decision for their life. And so I worry that we lump that all together. I also think about the stigma that we have with women and our girls, the ways that we look at them, we, you know, what, what decisions and the ways we judge them for the sexual choices that they make. I think about you know, the, the mental impact, the stress, the, the suicide rates, mental health, wellness, people who may be feeling as though they do not have access, they cannot have access to a free and safe abortion that they now have to go and deal with another, um, an additional barrier, another challenge that, that is a system. I don't understand how we, how you can tell me what to put in my uterus and you can't tell him to put a mask on his face. Like, it just feels like, how can you, make the choices like at which part of the line is it my body my choice so it's it's your choice when you decide to wear or not wear a mask but it isn't my choice when I decide how I want to what I want to do with my body uh, and so it, it's all really really troubling and when I think about the ways that our system like we, we are, could potentially be forcing women into carrying a baby full term when we don't even have decent rights and responsibilities with adoption and foster care. We don't have adequate leave when you take, when you have a baby. We don't have free health care. We don't have free child care. You only get four weeks when you have a kid. Like, so you're going to force somebody to do these things and then not even create systems to support them. Um, it, it's problematic. It's problematic. And I, I, my, my push to people is to think that, that there are a lot, be careful that when we talk just about abortion, that we are not mixing that up with women's reproductive rights, because those are two different things with two different sets of issues. Say based it again. On all kinds of different ways that people are, that they, of their lived experiences around class, <laughs> around race, <laughs> around all of those things. And if you have privilege, yeah, I'll, I'm going to put myself on mute now. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. Uh, Doc, what are your thoughts? You know, early this morning, um, as someone who grew up the son of a librarian, I'm a reader, which y'all know. And um, when I saw that, I was like, I can't remember whether it's called The Onion or it's like one of these like 
websites or blogs or whatever, it's almost like a gag news. Like it's not yeah, it's real. The onion. It's the onion. It's the onion, right? Yeah. And I literally was like, someone's playing a joke on me because this just can't be real. And so I, I sent a note to my mother because, you know, she was just outraged, right? And, uh, you know, and I said, well, I hear you and I'm saddened by this. And she says, it's funny that they they want to ban abortions, but yet they want a right to choose if they can wear a mask during a public health crisis. They also want the right to not get vaccinated during a public health crisis. They also believe that families should have a right to choose which school their schools their kids attend and then get public's money to support vouchers to attend religious schools. And they are okay with people having the right to carry a gun and still be legally insane, yet still make the purchase. And she says, yet women and those who love them don't have a right to make a choice about what happens to their bodies. And I just found that um, to be powerful to hear my mother articulate. Shout out mom, dudes. Just the way she kind of structured her argument um, was just impactful to me because um, I just find the whole discussion around abortion to be disgusting, right? Because the same people who argue, you know, well, we're pro-life are the same people that would support the war in Vietnam which was a death campaign, right? And I think these are the same folks that believe in personal liberty and the power to choose whatever it is, but yet women don't have a right to choose based on their own humanity. Like as human beings, you should have the right to choose. And I also remember several years ago talking to a friend of mine who studies public health and was talking about insurances not covering some insurances not covering birth control, but yet they'll cover Viagra. And I was like, oh, word? I was like, damn, like that's that's deep, right? And I, I just and and for me, why does it matter? Whether two gay people get married, why does it matter whether a woman has an abortion? Like, if that's their choice. Love who you love. Love who you love. If that's what you want to do, like, do what works best for you. And so I just, it just saddened me that, you know, these, and, and, and listen, like, am I surprised that they're attacking this? No. But what I fear is, like, if they do this, what's next? With it's, the funny you should, it's funny you should right-leaning focus of the court. Is it um, an expansion of who can own a gun? Is it um, getting <laughs> rid of um, what was the other one I was talking to someone about? Uh, there was another Brown. Brown and loving. Loving. I mean, just mm -hmm. I just think that like and would I that be a bad thing? Huh? Well, if, if 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 they if they overturn Brown, would that be bad? I think that so would be I, amazing. We talked about that too, but you know, Doc, you brought up something important that your mother said 
and shout out to her wisdom and, and your counsel to even like be in a place to listen and, and, and share that with the with us in community. But you said sad for women and those who love them. Yes. Imagine that this isn't even about some like image of some hypersexualized young person who's like sure. out running amok, right? Like what if you and, and your wife decided we're not having a family right now? I'm getting ready to go to Ukraine. This isn't a good time. Like, what if that was a decision? We, we don't want to be parents, right? It's still the whole Viagra and like not birth control is, is just steeped again in all of these sexual ideals and these images about what women are supposed to do and what is okay for them to do with their bodies. We continue to talk about women and and, and the choices they make, but these women aren't having sexual partners by themselves. There are men who are a part of these situations. These are discussions that people are having together and we have to stop criminalizing and, and like making it seem like this is something that is, that is not, that is about them moving away from some ideal that you're supposed to have. You're supposed to get married at this age, you're supposed to have a kid and you're supposed to check off these boxes. If it is my body, it is my choice for how I want to do that. And we don't, also the other things. If we wanted to talk about rolling back abortion and we had high quality access to sex education and high quality access to safe contraceptives, then maybe we could say, we've got all these other things in place and so this is something that's a barrier, but we don't even, they don't have, even, want you teaching we don't even have access to that. We don't talk about it in school. We criminalize it, we make it seem like it's dirty and it's a problem. We don't talk about the growing number of young people between the ages of 15 and 17 who are pregnant by men who are over the age of 25. Come on now, say that. That's a problem. We have to look at this. You know, Doc is always pushing us to talk about nuance. And we have to like, like, that's my my thing. Like we say abortion, but we're thinking about forced sterilization, about the number of women who may be entering menopause, whose doctors are prescribing them to get full hysterectomies, who are having fertility issues, who are pregnant and who are unable to healthily or safely carry a child to term, who have to have those terminated. Like this is not some way to get young girls to make better choices with their bodies. It's, it, it's taking, it is steeped in racist, sexist, patriarchal beliefs about who can do what when and what it must look like and it's it's awfully sad and and not okay ma'am you're putting on a clinic today and i appreciate you and i appreciate the fact that we were able to learn from you today this is amazing um okay and so I, I guess the, the last topic, I don't know if we're going to have enough time to like get to it uh, with the amount of uh, debt and veracity that you guys go after these uh, these topics. But um, I guess I'll set it up. So a, a, a little a, a, a senior in high school, uh, senior in high school. Went to the prom. I don't have the picture. Apologize, but it's floating all over the Internet. And um uh, on her dress, uh, her prom date was on her dress, and both of them had uh, automatic rifles. African American um, uh, teenagers. Uh, I think one had been uh, one was a straight A student and had been offered a full scholarship. I think to an HBCU. The HBCU then rescinded the um, the uh, the full ride, the full scholarship. Um, after, um, you know, the media had caught attention to uh, what was going on with regards to uh, this. And so I guess the question that I have for you guys is, is this fair um, to be hyper scrutinized, uh, 
as a, a young black teenager, given the fact that we have uh, white kids that this is normalized? These some tough topics tonight, man. It's <laughs> the second time I heard you breathe hard. Yeah, I know. He huffing and puffing. He like trying to blow the house down. So I know he is a pro-gun owner, and, and, and he has made that very clear. So I'm going to make my little part small. Yeah. And, and then let Doc pick up the rear. Leave people alone. We, we know that we operate in a world where what is good and fair and right for one is not the same. And so there could be this whole like, well, you know, we can't do what they do. Well, then stop bothering us. Like, leave people alone. It just is so crazy to me when we see these things that are so clear. When white children have guns on their Christmas cards, they're even under the age of 17. Little itty bitty kids, guns and rifles bigger than that. Merry Christmas from the Washingtons. You can do that and there's no consequence, but this girl can't be sitting in front of her house with a registered weapon like, hey, somebody bring it. Who wants some of me? I'm still getting straight A's. We can't. And then when it happens, we come up with these excuses. Oh, well, she should know better. Why? She got to silence herself. We have to silence ourselves and censor ourselves enough. Why do we have to continue to say that what is good for this is not good for that? And it, it, it always, it always, there was another story about a beautiful young girl, senior, had purple and pink hair, living in her best life, enjoying, taking up space in a way that is unapologetic. And her school says, oh, well, now your hair is a distraction. So you can't graduate if your hair is like that. Wait, what? Like, I can't even take up space. I can't even express myself in the way that I want to without you coming for me. It, it doesn't even matter because even when you follow the directions and fit in the rules of what they say is okay for them, there's still always a caveat. Oh, but not for you. This is okay to where you can have guns, but oh, but not for you. Well, you can have individualized expression, but oh, but not for you. And too often that before not that not for you is black girls. Leave us alone. Stop bothering us. It's not okay. Mm. Ah. I don't have nothing after that. Bruh, it's, it's hard. Like it's like, how can you come after that? I can't like, even um <laughs> I mean I I mean, yes, uh H is right. Like I am a registered gun owner, right? And as y'all have heard me say before, like I mean, I grew up in 48210, which is one of the most violent zip codes in Detroit. And my grandparents moved from the south with guns. Cause they were you know, they were from the South in Tennessee. So I grew up in a family where people had guns. Like it wasn't this thing. Right. So, and and now I'm a legal gun owner, like, and go to the range and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, you know, um, but I think all that said, um, the criminalization of black youth is where this story stops and starts. Right. Like just the ways in which black kids in particular, black girls are criminalized. Um, and I think the same argument can be made for uh, many indigenous kids, many uh, Latinx girls who suffer in silence because of the stereotype. Um, and I just think that across the board and for certain groups of kids of color, uh, girls in, in particular, and I'll never forget the video and when the young the sister was yanked out of her chair. I don't know if y'all remember this video where she was yanked out of her chair by, I don't know if it was a police officer, school resource officer. And I was stunned. And someone asked me, like, 
you've been in education a long time. Like you've never seen that. And I was like, no, ever. And I said, I've never seen it in the school I worked in as a teacher, ran as an administrator. I just am not familiar with that way of treating children because regardless of what that, what my students would say to me, they're still children and they deserve to be treated as such. And when I saw this story, and maybe it's because I'm getting older and I'm right at that tipping point of 50, uh, maybe I'm just jaded and was just not surprised at what happened. I just was like, sad, tragic, but not surprised because that's the American way, right? And it's not to excuse it, it's just to say that um, for whatever reason, when I saw it, I was just numb, like just, um, it, it made me wonder, do I actually have hope in the better angels in our society for good things to happen for our kids? Because I was saddened by that. Um, I was saddened by that. So I don't have anything profound to add like H, but, um, yeah, well, that 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 young lady was her 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 offense to be body slammed to the floor by a school resource officer was having her phone out. That was the offense, and 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 the violence that was um, inflicted upon her, and the violence that is inflicted upon black girls and brown girls who have to sit and watch that. Um, the message that it sends to black boys when you can treat black women that way um, is is all problematic, and it's not okay. Um, and so I, I, I don't think I don't have hope because I, you know, I am inspired and, and that is a, a huge commitment of mine, both in my research and in my work is to make sure that girls are taking up space in a way that is unapologetic. And I tell people all the time, there's work that we need to do with girls and youth. And then there's work we need to do with adults. Because if I give young girls and women the, the voice and the space to practice and build confidence and they come into their schools, in their offices, in their grocery stores and start holding other people accountable, I also have to understand that I'm giving them the tools that could potentially put them at risk too. That could open up the door for this additional assault, additional oppression. But that does not mean that I will not model and, and inspire mm -hmm. and encourage young people to be young women, specifically those of color, to stand up and be unapologetic. And when we talked a few weeks ago about protect black women, like that's what that looks like. That looks like letting them take up space and be safe to just exist on their prom night in front of their house, taking pictures with their friends on graduation day when they decide to wear purple and pink hair or decide to decorate the top of their graduation cap, when they decide to dye their hair and get tattoos and get piercings or show up in whatever way they wanna show up. We have a responsibility to encourage that and not criminalize it, and it happens too often. Let's go, H. Man, listen. <laughs> you shut this shit down. Hey, I don't want to talk no more. It's, uh, it, it, we, I think we're going to have to develop a segment, let H get you together, because the, the, the segment <laughs> H get you together. <laughs> hey, and H, listen. Listen, yo, you, you, these principals need you. So, like, even, even if you don't want to come back to be a principal, if you come back to be a principal coach, Hey, I got something for you. <laughs> you just hit me up and let me know. Be in recruitment mode. We might even be a recruiting remotely. Season. Hey, it's listen, I'm telling season. you, these folks need you. They I know you, I know you're living your dream, but if you ever want to live my dream, let me know. 
Well, thank you, Ray. And, and shout out to all those teachers. It's Teacher Appreciation Week. Shout out to those people who are there and who show up every day for young people. Yes. Broadcasting live from the D.C. Uh, where you at? Where you at? <laughs> Tell them where you at. I'm at the gold standard of excellence, acknowledging all of these amazing teachers and educators. And, and, and while this is just a small subset of who these people are, I know that there's more of you out there all over. And so if you yeah. are watching, keep going. If, you, if you're not, start watching some of these good folks and get better. Um, there's still hope. That's what's up. So you've been listening to Three Times Dope Podcast. We will see you all next week. Hopefully, you were able to enjoy this. Uh, teachers, if you're watching, happy Teacher Appreciation Week. We'll check in with you next week. Peace.